a Highline podcast. This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Hey, hey, welcome everybody. Um, what are you guys drinking today, Stephen? So, Josh, I am drinking a Lemoncello LaCroix. Oh, yep, me too. We're back at it. Back at it again with the Lemoncello LaCroix and or the White Vans, depending on your knowledge of memes and YouTube. Um, That's funny. We have a, a different co-host today oh. coming to us from the A Freedom of Ideas podcast. Uh, Corey, welcome to the show as our third. Well, thank you so much. And I was, I, I was, I'd been thinking of myself in kind of the guest space and now sort of trying to debate oh. the, the additional level of responsibility, uh, gravitas, what have you that is entailed. And now, now I'm, I'm kind of a co-host. I wasn't expecting that. Wasn't prepared for it. Might not have the emotional <laughs> fortitude, but I, you know, I guess we can see how it goes. <laughs> Luckily co-host in this case, honestly, probably takes some pressure off of you. Uh, to feel as if you're the person who all the questions are going to be directed to for the rest of the episode. We're going to treat this Fair enough. just like the round table that we usually do here on Ravel. So, uh, yeah, I, I already mentioned it, but we're, uh, you're coming from your own podcast, A Freedom of Ideas. I wonder if you could just briefly introduce yourself, what your podcast is about. And then I would also say that people can get a full deep dive on you over on your interview at No Normal People. But yeah, a little introduction of yourself, and then uh, let us know what you're drinking today. Absolutely. So, Corey DiBiase, as you said, host of the A Freedom of Ideas podcast. Uh, the podcast is is fundament- fundamentally there to explore ideas, obviously, of freedom and of responsibility and ideas related to reason, mostly through the lens of philosophy, but with the hopes of making that philosophy tangible and uh, you know, accessible to whoever wants to come in and listen versus, you know, diving right into the, uh, the, the, the seven syllable words and the German and all that kind of good stuff. So, so that is what I do with my free time more or less. And I am drinking, uh, sort of very tentatively. It's over on the, the corner of the, the, the desk. So it doesn't get drunk too quickly, but I'm doing a Domaine de Grey Sablon Beaujolais Village. So that's what we've got going on over here today. Goodness gracious, that's the fanciest drink that has ever been on the show. Is that a wine? What is that? That is a a red wine. Uh, This weekend, my wife and daughter are away. So this weekend was making sauce weekend, making like uh, numerous 20 gallons of uh, Italian red sauce. So when that happens, the wine tends to kind of take over the, the, the mindset of the weekend. I love that idea. You had photos all over Twitter. You basically spent a whole day just with garlic cloves. Is that right? I, that was that was a couple. I think that was uh, an episode and three quarters of Star Trek: The Next Generation on on record that took me to get the garlic out. So yeah, yeah fantastic. That is a great way of measuring time. Is uh, Star Trek 
next generation. Sounds like, it sounds like a good process. Wow, Josh, thank you for that. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, so Corey, in, in Emily's absence, we thought we would have you on this show. You had sent me an email a while ago after we spent time on No Normal People asking questions about process theology and the way you have kind of come up in philosophical thought to think about uh, some of these concepts that maybe process theology intersects with or conflicts with or something like that. So um, we wanted to just leave the floor open to you, let you kick off the topic and let you kick off the animating questions for this episode of Ravel, like we always do. Okay, sounds good. So, and speaking as someone who has... um, at different times in my life, I've both with someone I would call myself a person of faith, but fundamentally a person of Christian faith, someone who has at different times in his life not described himself that way. When I think about philosophy and the relationship between religion and philosophy, theology and philosophy, however you want to put it, if you kind of think of a classic conception of the Christian faith, which has been my primary orientation and which when I listen to you folks, I, I hear so many things that sound just slightly out of step with that, but in a really exciting <laughs> way, which is where this question came from. But I'm, I'm already going off on a tangent, so let me get back to it. So if you kind of root yourself in this, this what I would call a classic, uh, say, 19th, 20th century uh, conception of, of Christian faith, what you have is, it's almost required that you then have a, a concept of the absolute or a concept of the, of the necessary versus, and I, I'll give an example of this in just a second, but if you approach the, a lot of the same philosophical questions with more of uh, what you would call a naturalist background or a non-religious background, everything becomes much more contingent, right? Like uh, the definition of good becomes contingent on my, my life experience, my values, the, the values of the people that surround me. Versus, to use the analogy I like to use, if John Stuart Mill, for example, in the 19th century was able to actually speak with God as as John Stuart Mill understood God, and, and John Stuart Mill was to ask, what is goodness? Certainly, you presume in that classical conception of, of Christian religion that, first of all, God would have an answer, and that, second of all, that answer might be very, very hard to understand but that answer will be definitive, right? There aren't going to be like, well, it might be this, maybe it could be these other three things. No, but that's going to be the definitive thing. So that's where kind of this idea of the absolute, the necessary, the fact that there are certain things that you can almost say are written in stone in the fabric of reality Hmm. as a consequence of all this uh, versus, again, a more contingent, you might say relative, uh, relational uh, kind of idea that, that you would have thinking about these things without the... Without, not from a a Christian background, um, but then when I as I say when I hear you folks talking about process theology and just talking generally, <laughs> it seems a lot less absolute than my instincts have always been. So I've just been kind of dying to ask you guys this question, just sort of hear your thoughts on it. Does it make sense as a question? Does it make sense as a framework? And kind of where does it lead us? This is so exciting. This is so fun. Well, so certainly. I think uh, Josh and I definitely find ourselves in a camp that's probably a lot more comfortable with the idea of relativity, right? Or these contingencies. Or at the very least, cognitive dissonance. Sure. On issues. Yeah. Yeah. I think we both have people in our personal lives who probably think that we are uh, woefully misled with those opinions as well. 
who probably subscribe to the idea of the absolutes that you're talking about in a pretty classical, yeah, I think 19th and 20th century kind of just like hits the nail on the head right there, especially in the realm of philosophy. Huh. Yeah. Josh, I don't think we've ever tackled just like the concept of absolute truth, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, Corey, you might not know this about me because I don't think I talk about it on Ravel very much, um, but I used to host a discussion night called Beer Philosophy. Um, that was very informal. I'm not a philosophy degree or anything. I think you've read quite a bit more than I have, but it started very similarly in the way that Ravel does, like starting with like a, a topical question and just kind of like pulling on the thread from there. And we had this rule. <laughs> one of our very few rules was anytime we came back to the question of what is truth, <laughs> we just drank <laughs> because there's no there's no good way to just it's tackle a, that without just destroying friendships. It's a drinking <laughs> game now. But yeah, Stephen, I think you're right that we have not. And honestly, on our last episode that Corey, you have not listened to yet because we just got done recording it 15 minutes ago that we talked all about change. And honestly, I couldn't tell you what the title is because we haven't titled it yet either. But I was struggling to not bring up whether or not God changes because I knew we were about to have this discussion. Um, because I think that that's what's so intriguing to me about the idea of process theology and process philosophy, as I understand it, is that somehow God also experiences change fundamentally, mm. which like as I myself have gone through change, whether it's like been in terms of belief or just like, you know, life happening, like it's really fascinating for me to even like imagine God also going through change as like, if I'm going to believe in God as ultimate being or ground of being or somehow the creator of the universe, like what does that mean? for God to go through change as well. Is that the way that you conceptualize of process theology or process philosophy? I suppose so to a limited extent, to, to the extent that I have conceived of it at, at all. I really feel like I'm kind of, uh, I've heard it referenced a couple times, but otherwise sort of picking up from the shadows of listening to what you folks are talking about and, and, and fitting the pieces together. But I certainly when asking this kind of question, the uh, and if, if this becomes the shorthand, I suppose that's fine. But the the quote unquote God of John Stuart Mill doesn't change, presumably, right? That is, is an absolute constant. And then whatever truths result in direct relation to, uh, to the existence of that God, those truths are similarly unchanging. And everything, you know, it, it might just be the whirlwind of everything else around us that causes us to perceive change. But the fundamentals in that classical conception clearly should not right but but it is what is so fascinating to me about this way of thinking and from a theological standpoint is i just never imagined that you could could talk about these things and incorporate the notion that yes perhaps god does change perhaps mm. you know that is that is part of that experience as well which is a, it's a fascinating way to put it what has been your um experience with process philosophy because as i understand it it's like kind of a its own corner of philosophy you know, I don't know, and I, I mean, this might be one of those things that it goes under different names. I don't know that I'm aware of the term process philosophy at all. I've, I've been thinking about this purely through the lens of, of what you guys uh, talk about. And so thinking of it primarily or almost exclusively more of a theological realm that, of course, then iterates back into and has a profound effect on philosophy. But I've been thinking of it mainly in theological terms. Yeah, I think in general, operating with these with the definitions, I think 
Josh, what you're asking about is kind of from the mathematician, honestly, I'm forgetting his first name, but Whitehead is kind of where... Uh, it's Alfred Whitehead. I just looked oh, it up to double check. Yeah, and, and he is did some writing about essentially the the whole, right, all of existence kind of being in process in the sense that things, you can't necessarily through time narrow down uh, the moment you like... Like if, if I was going to describe walking out of my front door, I, I'm going to describe the process of putting my shoes on and then turning the doorknob and then taking the step out and doing that one fluid motion of holding the door behind me and closing it behind me. And the, there, there are many uh, discrete moments in there that if you only selected one of them, you're not necessarily going to find this is when he left the house. Right, because it was the whole process that actually got me there, and then it, kind of extrapolating that to the world of theology is like things are constantly in motion and constantly changing. And I think this certainly will fly directly in the face of things like God's immutability, just as the unchanging nature of God, as classical theists hold it. I think process theologians say like, if the whole universe seems to be in process wouldn't it make sense that the God who created it or the God that is a part of it should also be in process? Like if you, if God is the, oh gosh, how did you say it, Josh, in the last episode in the, the, the unmovable mover or something like that? The Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Like the domino that cannot be yeah. shoved over. Yeah, right. Like if God isn't moving, but everything else is, what does that mean? And maybe for, maybe for an argument of consistency or just, observing the way the the world works and observing the way our experiences kind of form themselves around everything is in process right like i think even in terms of my marriage i i can't really point to one moment or one thing that represents my marriage it's the seven years that it's been in process i think what's interesting to me about process theology as i've run across it on the internet because really i haven't done any reading about it i've just kind of come across it through podcasts and interviews and um, like Homebrewed Christianity and uh, Mason Menega on a people's theology, or I have a couple Twitter mutuals who are very firmly in the hashtag process party. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I think what's interesting to me about what I've gathered from my exposure to process thought so far is that, Corey, I agree with you that it does seem to stray away from some of the like classic theism of the Renaissance. I, I'm not completely sure if it directly contradicts it because well, like maybe it does. Like I could see someone making an argument for that, that it's like heretical to think that God somehow changes. Um, although I think you'd have to make a case for that. Uh, but I, I think what's interesting is that it also seems very in line with what a lot of Christians would espouse that a relationship to God is fundamentally a two-way street. Like it's a relationship. It's not just a religion. It's not just deism. It's not like God has no impact on our lives. And I think that a lot of Christians pray as if process theology was true, that like Mm -hmm. they fundamentally believe that our prayers can affect the way God interacts in the world. And from what I've gathered, that seems to be very in line with process thought. Yeah, no, I can certainly see that distinction. And it, it's funny, it's a, it's interesting that you push it into the realm of what are, what is the sort of formal theological word on this versus 
what are our instincts when, you know, I, I, assuming here, but based on my own experience, just like you say, when, when you engage in that act of prayer, you certainly are not in that moment assuming that you are or hope or, or imagining that you're having no impact whatsoever. You're, you're hoping in that moment that God is at least changeable enough for your prayers to have some influence. Maybe you're trying to, whatever the, whatever the case may be, whatever you're trying to accomplish with that. Certainly we imagine, as you say, a relationship, a degree of reciprocity. Whereas that I can also see sort of the, the more official theological line being that, you know, if, if, if God is, the highest, the greatest, the best, the most rational, the most good, well, then how how can you possibly change from being the pinnacle of all things without ceasing to be the pinnacle of all things? And that's a kind of mm. an abstraction, but I, I would imagine that being hmm. like if we were if we were doing it th- this at the Council of N- Nicaea versus doing it on uh, on uh, Zencaster here, then th- that might be more the argument that if you're if if you are perfection and then you change, how can you be anything other than imperfection. Well, again, that's a very textbook kind of argument versus a, a felt lived kind of argument. Hmm. You know, it also, it strikes me too, that even in the classic conceptions of God, um, like the different omnis, I don't, I can't remember what that's called, but like the, the conceptualizations of like omnipresence and omniscience and all loving. I think what strikes me still is like, there's always been an emphasis on like God as a living being. Like even if God is a mystery in the Trinity and like the creator, like we, we can't understand God, like somehow God is also living and like every concept of life that we have is like ever growing and ever changing and expanding and developing uh, until it dies, of course. And there's like, you know, decay and stuff, but like God has always been held up as like, uh, like the, the eternal being that moth and death does not destroy. And so like, why why wouldn't we get on board with an idea of God that is also expanding somehow? Even though I agree that it's like, it feels nebulous to like, imagine what that looks like. <laughs> like, I yeah. don't know what that looks like, but it doesn't seem far-fetched. And, and I, I, as, as we talk about this, it, and I'm really guessing here, because of course I have never lived the life of someone in a, a uh, polytheistic religion, a pre-Christian religion. I, I I have not lived a life where I just went out and assumed that the Greek or the Roman or uh, or whatever other sets of gods plural that that was kind of the operant factor in in uh, in in the metaphysical world. But I would imagine that that theological worldview would be much more open to the notion that deities change just like everything on Earth changes. Every changes is constant mm. to I go with that. I believe that's Heraclitus. But mm. if you look at sort of how those gods operated, how they interacted, how they how their feelings changed, how their their affiliations changed, you think that change in the theology of the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans or whoever else, that that might come much more easily than it seems to for Christian theology, which is in, uh, in in some ways, built around this notion of the uh, oh. the optimist, the the omni, the the the, mm. the unchanging perfection of God. I think the mm. concept I want to latch onto there, because I agree with you. I think the idea that Zeus would lose his Zeushood or his godhood is probably something they didn't think about all that often. Because it, uh, it more or less, I again, I I guess I would assume. Believing in a theological system like that, it's like, well, yeah, they're the gods. 
who am I to question? And I think that's kind of a a Christian line that sometimes comes out is like, who am I to say that (laughs) what God should think or God should want? But I think the operative word that I liked in your description there was they changed their relationships. And I think with those polytheistic gods having relationships with one another, that suggests the possibility of changing. And uh, because we're naturally going to change to uh, make room for those we are in relationship with. And I think while Christians nowadays like to do a lot of um, abstract theologizing about like the concepts of the Trinity, like God in God's self being a three in one thing entity, uh, you know, even that gets squishy, but that idea of the Trinity of father, son, and Holy spirit being in relationship with one another for all the talking we do about that. I don't think we necessarily are honest with ourselves when we talk about God being in relationship with God's self And maybe that also suggests that God would be changing amidst God's self because God has a relationship. I think, I think the way I've heard a lot of these theologies given is like when we talk about process theology or what's called open and relational theology is especially in the concept of prayer that Josh was talking about is like, it's the relationality of the prayer that both change, changes the person who is praying and potentially changes the person being prayed to. And it kind of lures us into new space together as the relationship is explored, which certainly kind of gets us away from the concept of these like philosophical absolutes. I do like the idea of like God getting to almost be liberated from the, uh, the metaphysical etched in stone. Like this is what God is like as if we could ever fully grasp it anyway. Yeah. Like I think what makes a lot of sense to me is like my concept of God changing, like my understanding and appreciation for the mystery of God, like expanding or growing beyond the bounds of what I previously knew it as or theologized God as. But I think what's more difficult for me is conceptualizing somehow the concept of God, like, or like, like the God expanding like i don't deny that it's like somehow possible like beyond my understanding but like that's less easy for me to conceptualize than my perception changing Mm. almost as if like you're you're comfortable being the one in orbit yeah Mm -hmm. um but then it's hard to imagine that our sun itself is like flying through space incredibly fast as well yeah like if if it's just my perception changing, that almost gives more credence to, Corey, to your point, the like classical theistic view of like God is unchanging and it is us who are changing. Mm. But I, I guess the, I don't want to say the, the problem I have with that, but the, the sort of dominoes that fall from that one domino that, that can't fall, ironically, um, when you have that the minute you have that notion of the absolute, of the necessary, it and this, I, there's no way I'm going to phrase the, this that it's not going to sound strange. So, but bear with me just for a <laughs> second. But it, it kind of has to. It iterates out, and it almost infects everything else. So, if if there's a, a God, and God is mm. ultimately unchangingly perfectly good, well, then God 
God is going to do stuff, presumably like define what goodness is. And he's going to, it's going to define our souls to some extent. So, so he's going to define all, you know, all these, these big ideas, like, like freedom and love and everything else. And in so doing, like that, that's kind of that, that's putting an absolutely a solid piece of bedrock down that first of all is, is solid enough to build on, which is why philosophically speaking, it can be just wonderful to have those absolute ideas because you know, like, okay, this piece right here, the notion of good, I might not even fully understand it, but I know it's not going anywhere. I know it's going to stay where I, where I found it and I can Mm. build on it. Mm. Um, And that I think is sort of one of the key presumptions of a lot of more classical sort of Western philosophical thinking. Whereas uh, on the flip side, if you if you want some things to be sort of in in relation and some things to be defined by their contingency or by their relativism to to some extent i it's always feels to me like i have a very hard time having both things be true at once where i can say Ooh, that ah. um you know either we have this absolute or we have none of it at all and i will say this could be partially a glitch in my thinking because a lot of what I have tried to do personally with philosophy is adjust to the notion of there not being a God. Um, as I say, I've, I've kind of approached these questions from, from both sides, but uh, one of the most scary things to me um, when thinking about a, a naturalistic and atheistic, however you want to say it, a view of the world is, well, if I, if, if we do that, then I, I suddenly just have no basis on which to say whether something is right or wrong. And, and you imagine this, the world descending into chaos because I can, <laughs> you know, we no longer have any tools to say, oh, wow, you know, Stephen just uh, helped, helped this person bring their groceries in. That That's that's pretty cool. That's pretty good. Oh, Stephen just knocked this person over. That's bad. We can't say that anymore because we don't have any foundation in what's necessary and what's robust and philosophically certain. So getting around that, I've spent all this time sort of trying to reimagine these ideas as being contingent, kind of all supporting one another, like, you know, the like the cloud city. It's, it's everything is supporting all these ideas are supporting each other without being supported by any of those sort of key foundational pieces, but I find it very hard to, to have both things be true at once. And maybe that's, that could just be a glitch in the way Mm. I think about these things. I don't know. Mm. I think in some ways the, the way I've kind of grown into thinking about this in particular is the experience of the world that I have is clearly being filtered to whatever my consciousness is through my senses and the way those are uh, summed together or compared to each other. Um, And while I still think there's something in me that is kind of attracted to like the ideal of some objective truth or absolute out there that God represents, I think what I have grown comfortable in knowing in the last few years is even if that existed, I don't completely trust my ability to know it absolutely. And I have to be honest with myself about like, I I will just by the nature of being an observer, I will have a relative view of the absolute that you Corey wouldn't have or Josh wouldn't have. And I think that's, Maybe I'm doing something I'm not allowed to, but that has made me feel a lot more comfortable of 
at least trying to hold those two worlds in the same armful, you know, of, of having an ideal of an absolute out there, but not necessarily trusting my (laughs) relative faculties to actually understand it as the object or as the absolute, because just by the nature of observing it, I now have a vantage point that someone else doesn't. And maybe they see something that I don't in that absolute thing. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I think some, uh, some peers within the Christian tradition would say like, no, we have the ability to know the absolute absolutely. Corey, I made this, uh, this observation on our uh, last episode that we just recorded that like, we don't, we don't follow and make a religion out of math because it's absolute truth. But like, arguably it's like some of the most like measurable absolute stuff that we can find in the universe but like it's absolute truth nature does not lead us to like religify it (laughs) and i i'm not quite sure how to word this uh, but like i feel like a lot of christians or like other religions possibly as well treat the nature of god and god's relationship to causality as like fundamentally discoverable, like almost like science. Like we have theological tools with which we can maybe experiment, but at the very least study the nature of God and determine that ultimate reality that does absolutely exist, which I think is really fascinating because that seems more subject to improvement than like a mathematical kind of absolutism. Maybe I'm like stretching the analogy too far, but to me that gives way to more possibility that like your version of God is subject to change. If that makes sense. I think one thing that's, and I I shouldn't say one thing because there are about 15 things and I'm trying to pick (laughs) one of them and hopefully speak semi lucidly about it versus try and pick all 15 at once and just, 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 Uh, yeah. Welcome to recording this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. We just want to say how honored we are that you listen to Ravel. Seriously, there's a lot of great shows out there, and we're grateful to be in your feed. Thank you for helping us on our journey to normalize people asking questions about theology. If you want to support what we're doing, the best way to help is to tell a friend about us. We want to be a resource for people on their faith journeys, whether they're deconstructing, reconstructing, switching churches, deconverting, and everything in between. And if you're able, you can support us for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon. Supporting us helps us cover fees, software, equipment, future ideas, and more. For all of you church finance skeptics out there like me, don't worry, we're keeping an open book for transparency. For our supporters, we've built an online space where we can be together. We know it can be difficult to ask questions about our faith, so we want to make that more accessible, comfortable, and normal. We're using an app called Discord, where you'll get private access. You already know us, and we'd love to get to know you. Thank you to everyone who's already supporting, and thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color. Ravel is a founding podcast of the Heinlein Media Network. And here's a word from one of our sister shows, No Normal People. We're 
weird and, and unpleasant and I didn't enjoy it and I didn't enjoy the work I was doing. And I was driving home from the office to where, uh, which was in New Hampshire to where I lived in Boston and I was listening to Ani DeFranco and uh, the, the song Willing to Fight came on, which of course, if you know it, is just this wonderful, like, you know, at least for, for my generation, this great rallying song of trying to live with some kind of purpose and, and direction. And I'm listening to this song and as I'm going through and kind of mouthing the words and half singing, I, I realized that I'm also weeping, which is not something I do too often. Huh. And that's when it hit me like, oh, wait a minute. I'm, you know, I haven't done, you know, my, my life is still very new, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, but I'm wasting it. You know, this is not good. So I'm going to go home. I'm going to give my notice and I'm going to start looking for, uh, I'm going to play out my time as much as I have to. I'm going to go start looking for something in the nonprofit social services, something that means something to me, whatever that might be. Wow. And that was, I think, when my actual career per se, the thing that I put So I don't know about you, but I'm tired of all the coffee that's out there, and I want to try something new. You guys should try Revel Coffee, Montana local international award-winning roaster. Fun fact, we have partnered with this roaster to sell a specific blend of coffee throughout the whole Highline network. And it is pretty tasty, not going to lie. Absolutely. You already drink coffee, most likely, if you're American. You might as well drink some of the best coffee in the world and support one of your favorite podcasts on the internet. So if you are interested in this, you can go ahead and order from highline.network forward slash shop and we'll send you a bag. Hope you enjoy. But if you take that analogy of mathematics, you have a, a, a great, almost perfectly in keeping with the timeline too. you, you go from a very Newtonian view of the world in which mm. everything is absolute and orderly. And, and, you know, we, we, we kind of, as a, as a species, or at least as, as, as Europeans were kind of, I, I always felt like getting this kind of giddy sense that, wow, we are so close to understanding everything about this physical realm where, and we're so close to it. And then fast forward to the early part of the last century and certainly just building up from there, suddenly we dug just a little bit deeper and underneath this ordered system was the, the I mean, what appeared at first to be the total chaos of, of quantum physics. We see it's not as chaotic as we thought it was, but it certainly is. The, I mean, the, the New, Newtonian universe has come and gone. And I wonder if the same analogy can be brought over here to, I, I think, point toward what both of you has been have been saying to some extent, which is that it's 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 the limit of our own perception that is putting mm. God in this box that says that mm. we can't imagine how he can possibly change and remain God. Maybe that's not on him. Maybe that's on us and the fact that we just like, so we can't imagine it. I don't think the fact that I can't imagine something is going to necessarily slow God down too much if he can, does, and, and does imagine it and, and ends up sort of living with it as, as, as truth. So, so just the, the very fact that the level that we're working on cannot possibly be, you know, maybe we're just missing something so profoundly obvious because, because mm. we can't think on that level of complexity. Mm. Wow, I really like that. I feel like that is a really helpful analogy. Yeah, me too. 
But now you're going to, now Henning is going to come back around and say that, see, I told you quantum <laughs> physics does solve everything. You were wrong. See, now I, I, you, this is a great trap you, you, you uh, laid for me here, Henning. I, I really yeah, I admire it. This has been my master plan. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, I don't know, for context, Corey, in season one of his podcast, he did a series of episodes uh, trying to do work or doing work around the nature of the soul. Uh-huh. And then he, he puts out like uh, what he calls. Um, oh, no. What's the word you call your bonus episodes? Uh, quantum. Int- oh, the epiphenomena. Epiphenomena. He puts out one of these like bonus like epiphenomena. It doesn't really fit in with the season, but it needed to be said kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And he puts this episode out called quantum entrancelment, which is a fun invented word of his own. But uh, basically, like. Over the last few episodes, I had been making note of a few objections I had of saying like, yeah, I mean, but what if we just looked at quantum physics as a way to, I don't know, explain away? That's what it felt like I wanted to do. But then without me ever interacting on it, he goes and puts out this bonus episode and basically just like knocks down every one of the objections I had taken a note on. Uh it was nice. It was truly masterful. But yeah, so now we're full circle and maybe quantum physics does do what I wanted it to do in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, Corey, I really like the way you put that. I think in in terms of this analogy of like moving beyond Newtonian, the Newtonian universe to something like the Einstein universe or um, whatever that next step represents it's just like the ability to think in new complexities maybe finally there are christian thinkers or even just philosophers who are catching up with the idea of some things that we had accepted as absolutes maybe are not and maybe the the groundwork created for us by many many philosophers before us like they certainly help us build towards something but what if i want to start my foundation on just something completely different and that just like represents a space where we get to and and maybe what we continue to do unravel that uh at least slightly vexes you is oh i didn't realize that we could try and put these ideas together why is it do you think that a lot of people would consider it a threat ideologically to even consider that god can change somehow like, do you think it's because they think it threatens, like, God's superiority as a being? Like, kind of like what you were getting at, Corey, with, like, how could something be perfect and yet also change in some way? I think, and this is, I, I'm certainly not the one to speak to the the mindset that drives people to various theological beliefs and, and positions, but... I think if you look at the entire history of the way we handle rationality, and this is this is what I've been spending most of my time with the podcast trying to sort of piece piece together and, and piece apart and everything else, we we just have this. We, we can't tolerate anything that is not one principle, two principles, like that. You can't boil down to a fairly straightforward. This is the bottom line. I can give you. I can write a whole long book. But just understand that that the bottom line is, I think, therefore I am. And that's all you really need to take away. And we can hold on to that one thing. Hmm. So 
if you put God in this position where he is, I mean, any word you're going to use is going to be faulted and limited to some extent, but is it changing? Is it evolving? Is it moving in relation to existence to us, to uh, other things that we have no idea. Who, who knows what it is? But anything that suggests that that God is is in any way moving around, right? Changing in any way that's going to make it harder for us to 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 get to that bottom line. I think it just it does something to our mindset that's that's very much. It, it, I'm try, trying to think of the, the right word here, but it kind of, kind of makes us dizzy. It gives us a, <laughs> a, 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 a just a, we can't handle that kind of um, enigma. We can't be comfortable with that because, of course, if we've built our entire belief about the world and about ourselves and about what is good and what is bad, if we've built that all on this foundation and then we find this foundation is, is is moving around on us, even in ways that don't necessarily affect what's good and bad. But if there's change there, boy, that's unsettling, right? The boy, that's going to make mm. us feel like how unst- unsolid is the rest of the tower I've tried to build up, build up on the on this foundation that I thought was solid and unmoving. I mean, to use a biblical metaphor, when you've been told that you're building your house on the rock, and then that rock turns out to be sand of course you're going to freak out because you were told that like building on sand was a terrible idea (laughs) right Hmm. i man i really like your uh analogy of like special relativity and general relativity and how like um actually no i guess you weren't even saying that you were just you were saying like newtonian versus einsteinian physics but my mind went to special and general relativity Hmm. and how like we there like there are things in the natural universe that um, can be described one way and yet described a completely different way. And they're not necessarily contradictory, but they're just like completely different modes of thinking, like in terms of perspective. And I almost wonder if that's what process philosophy is trying to bring to a concept of God. Not that it's trying to completely upend how we think about God, but provide like a, like a new perspective, like literally a different point of view, almost. Like I was reminded of uh, this TED Talk uh, that tries to bring like a real world depiction of general relativity. And it like shows this guy uh, like tossing a ball up and down. And then uh, they turn the lights off and the ball glows. And the guy continues to toss the ball up and down, but he's on a moving cart and they move him across the stage. And so they... They very clearly show like your perspective, like you see this ball move in a zigzag pattern. And then from that man's point of view, that ball is still just moving up and down, especially in the dark. Like it does not look like he's moving. It doesn't look like the ball is moving side to side, but it is. But it is also moving just up and down to him. And I don't know. I think that people are really threatened frankly by the idea of there being differing perspectives on god or like god's nature because i think that it feels a lot safer to think of god as just the the ultimate and the absolute and in some ways it keeps us from the problem of defining god specifically like if we just say god is ultimate reality and god is all-knowing and all-powerful and like there's almost like no room for like well what does god do then Versus like process theology, I feel like from what I've seen, like kind of opens up the can of worms of, well, at the very least, God seems to be in process. 
with us somehow. Yeah. Well, especially speaking to the relationship we have with the future, I think I love mm. the way, Corey, I love the way you talk about how, well, if if we start with an absolute that more or less infects things in like a ripple effect away from it. So if we have the absolute, then that thing could define what good is. And that then as we act according to that definition of good, we can make moral judgments about what we're doing or what others are doing. And I think the natural consequence of that line of thinking all the way down is something that I've, I think it's further along in the, in the chain of events. But I think when I began to reject the idea of like a predetermined world in the sense of like things are predestined, uh, according to God's will or God's plan, um, almost describing us as the elect, as they would call it being, we're essentially just like godly robots, right? We don't really have free will. We, We don't really have a choice in what we do. I think when I rejected that and really tried to like start looking for a framework in which a God that I could be in relationship with existed and I have free will, I think looking back that direction, finally like holding on to the rope in the choppy seas of like, I have free will. What is at the end of this rope? Like, and I think that's where I ended up finding this idea of, even if there was some form of objective absolute out there, I don't think my ability to know it is exactly all that reliable. Um, and that made me feel a lot more comfortable with the idea of, of God being in process or God willing to change or willing to move and dance with us um, in process together, especially toward an open future, like a future that's not necessarily settled uh, since the before the foundations of time, as some Christians think about it, is like I I think the future is truly open to what we are asked to co-create with God, um, and I think that represents that relationality of it and that process of us as co-creators making something together with a vision of what is good and with a, a vision of what might be all loving or best for most. Though I think that is dangerously utilitarian in some ways, but at least a vision toward uh, how do we find flourishing in the future. Well, Stephen, what I think is interesting about like the way that you're putting that is that you find comfort in the idea that God is in process or like might not know everything about the future versus like I think a lot of people find comfort in the fact that God has like ultimate control in being the ultimate being. And I think it's hard for people to like see that like the other side, like another perspective of God can also be comforting. Hmm. I know that I, for one on, on that point, I, and this is kind of going back to this notion that, that the, the idea of the absolute and the necessary can iterate outward and begin to be part of every one of these ideas. But it would seem to me that a more process approach to thinking about these things not only changes the way you think about God, not only changes the way you think about your relationship with God and potentially with others, but it 
it changes how I think of myself as well. Because if if we mm-hmm. live in this universe where there is the one, you know, top of the mountaintop, perfect, absolute perfection, unchanging perfection that is unmoving. Well, if you keep going down the ladder far enough, eventually we're going to start talking about versions of me, right? And so me personally, there's if if everything is in this very absolute space, then presumably there is an there's an absolute best version of what I could be. There's an absolute worst version of what I could be. And then my entire life kind of be, gets, to, gets to be this thing on a scale of how much did I fail and how much did I succeed, which is not, I mean, then it becomes like I myself become this abstraction of perfection that I'm trying to achieve. Of course, I don't know what it is. Hopefully I have some guidelines as to what is a worse way to behave in a better way, but who knows, right? All the different things that, all the different choices you make, all the different freedoms you enact, who knows how far away I might have gotten from the best possible version of myself. If there is such a thing as a best possible version of myself, I actually find that profoundly worrying. And thus I'm much more comfortable in a space where, ah, dude, don't worry about that so much. Everything's in process. Everything is a process. It's all kind of evolving and Hmm. unfolding. And don't put that level of absoluteness on your on your own self uh on your own self image i guess yeah but that does it it does allow a tremendous amount of freedom to kind of be filled up for just brain space of saying i i'm not striving to do or be the absolute perfect version of myself it's just in this moment is there a better choice than the rest Right. And can I and can I just follow that in this moment and we'll see what happens in the next one. Corey, I'm curious what implications you think there would be on like real world implications if God exists and also God is somehow in process slash there's some sort of change, even if like the nature of God doesn't change. Cause I'm not sure how to think about that. Like I haven't really heard anyone talk about those ramifications i guess i i guess to to me it does something fairly similar on a practical level to what to what steven was just saying and uh, sort of allowing for this notion that not everything has to be on a kind of single scale toward or away from the ultimate the perfect the the absolute that everything is much more on the one hand worryingly vague than that but on another hand much more forgiving and much more uncertain and much more much more about a, a sense of a journey or a sense of discovery versus a sense of knowing that, okay, the, there is a right answer here and the extent to which I haven't found it yet mm. means that I'm, I'm failing in, in some significant way, which to me, that's always the dark side of any kind of absolutist yeah. uh, view of things. That's what, uh, that's what twists up the character on The Good Place, Chidi. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if if you're familiar with that show, Corey, uh, I think you would get a real kick out of, out of that one. But uh, yeah, that character just gets consumed with uh, constantly doing the right thing and and being convinced that for every question there is an answer, and it only just depends on my ability to read enough or study enough or research enough to find it. Yeah, and by the end of the show, the real character growth there is kind of releasing that sense of like white knuckled certainty that there is an answer out there because it tortures him throughout the entire show thinking that he 
failed to do the absolute best thing in every moment. And by the end of it, feeling very comfortable with saying like, no, this is what is unfolding right in front of me. And this is where I can step into and act in a way that I feel compelled is a good way of doing things, but not necessarily being twisted up inside to think that I am missing the best thing at the same time. I think what turns me off a little bit from like a process view of God, possibly, I mean, like this could be a, like a misconception on my part, but I think that it could possibly leave room for like a, a very, a, a very different, but maybe equally controlling view of God that is often seen by the concepts of God that where God has like ultimate causality. Like even if like the process view of God doesn't seem to have ultimate causality, like I just imagine people like bargaining for their lives or pleading with God that like something would happen. And then when it doesn't happen, like it is somehow also God's fault, even if like it was like circumstantial or like you had a part in it or something like that. Like, I don't know. I'm just like not quite sure how to square away with that because it seems to me that we could run into like similar but different problems when it comes to like God's causality in the universe. And maybe like we're just going to run into that with like any concept of God because like maybe that's what process theology does highlight is that like our perceptions of God are always improving. Mm. Now, I don't know, but then that also like seems to favor the idea that like God is unchanging and that we are just discovering God more. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Josh, you did it again. You tied yourself up in a knot. (laughs) (laughs) I did it again. I think one of the things that's that's interesting and is yet another layer of or, or another angle of complexity in all this is whether we we are envisioning uh, an absolute God or a, a God more in keeping with process theology or, you know, certainly are, are there any number of other possible options that we are either not capable of considering or we simply haven't uh, done so yet, whatever version of God we sort of decide upon, there will still be the barrier of interpretation that, and I, I've, I've certainly heard, never heard anything in, in theology that would suggest that this isn't a fairly universal truth. We don't know God, obviously. We don't have a perfect knowledge of, of God. We never could. We never should. It's not part of what any of this is supposed to mean. And that remains true, whether or not God is absolute, unchanging, the the classical, you know, Thomas Aquinas got it as right as any of us ever did kind of conception of God all the way over to the most process oriented notion of a God that is changing and and in relation and changing in relation to us, changing in relation to, to the universe. Whatever kind of God we imagine, there will always be a the interpretation gap where we can't see past it. And the best we're doing is trying to move around what we can put together, much of it based on our own intuitions, much of it, much of it based on the way our own minds are structured, really, that we're always trying to do that and kind of do this shadow game of, of trying to figure out some truths uh, past that, that interpretive veil that either way, we're never going to get past, at least not within the context of this conversation or this lifetime. Yeah. Wow. And that interpretation game, I think, honestly, is still why I'm comfortable with 
ultimately just kind of landing in a place of like, yeah, I'm not sure. Because I think that interpretation game is us being honest with ourselves and knowing that like, it's just impossible for me to be an objective observer of anything and just like understanding that and knowing that that is a way that I just by the nature of being a consciousness in this body versus you being a consciousness in that body is like, it's constraining in the sense of just, of course I have a vantage point and I'm never going to get it a hundred percent right. I can't. And th- and that's another interesting piece. And, and I, I keep bringing in things that I'm spending my, a lot of my time thinking about, but I suppose that's inevitable. Uh, I'm trying to learn a, a lot more about, and I'm, I'm at the most basic possible level about the way indigenous uh, thinking works and the way indigenous thought systems work. And, um, have been exposed to some fascinating stuff as a consequence of that. But one of the most basic precepts that seems always to be there, at least in the folks that I've read and listened to, I mean, it's certainly not claiming any kind of universal knowledge here, but a, a key tenant of everything is the extent to which everything is in relation to something else. So even the way I, I build knowledge is I'm building knowledge in relation to the world. I'm building, building knowledge in relation to Josh and Steven. I'm building knowledge in relation to, to places, to things, to objects, to, to everything. Whereas our tradition, the Western sort of more European tradition is always to think of ourselves as at least trying to be objective, trying to be out of relation so that that because that's where we feel like the real understanding is hidden. We just got to get out of our own personal perspective, out of our own uh, immediacy. And then that's where real understanding would happen. But then you have this entirely different worldview that suggests that, no, if you're doing that, if you turn yourself into Schrodinger's cat, disconnected from <laughs> from every other aspect of the world, from both from observation and from action, how could you possibly learn, truly learn something of value? How could you know something of value, understand something of value if you are in, uh, you're sort of abstracting yourself from everything that is normally how you learn things, is normally how you live and understand uh, different aspects of existence. So I I don't know mm-hmm. quite what to make of any of that in the context of this, but just what you just said, Stephen, it, it really sort of brought it right to me is that uh, that even that piece of objectivity it's it's another absolute that we're constantly striving for, and some folks would say, "No, no, you're you're going down the wrong road, man. You, you yeah. you've got to you've got to stop even stop trying to be objective. Get into it. Get into the world. Be part of it, and embrace the fact that you are your your own unique perspective, and that's never going to change. And see what happens. Goodness, great! I don't think we could say it better than that. Wow. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Just a hearty yes, I think. Yeah, I, you, uh, Schrodinger's cat is a perfect invocation there. I was. Uh, you also made me think about the double slit experiment, and just yeah, through that experience and experiment, understanding the nature of light changes upon observation. Yeah, and I think, gosh, no, I'm not even going to try and add to it. I think you said it perfectly well just now, Corey. Wow. Yeah. Uh. Josh, do you have any final thoughts before we get ready? No, I, I feel like this conversation is a great example of uh, the mystery of it all. Actually, it's funny you brought up the double slit experiment because I was thinking about that earlier. Like light can be like both light and wave and like appears to change. Yeah. Um, but like it like is still 
light. Like that doesn't like negate the fact that it's light. That it's photon and wave. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. It's fascinating. Wild. Corey, where can uh, people listen to you and find you slash I find you? Because now I feel like I should check out your show because I have not. <laughs> certainly, certainly. If you are so inclined and if the uh, technology uh, works a little bit better, you can check out afreedomofideas.com. You can check me out at afreedomofideas on Twitter. You can get me via email, words at afreedomofideas. And uh, in keeping with the theme that I've been trying to establish throughout this entire little segment, my podcast is called A Freedom of Ideas, and you're certainly uh, more than welcome to check that out as well. Wholeheartedly endorse. I love the show. And we did a nearly two hour long episode on No Normal People with you, getting to know you and your history and what you do for your day job and all these sorts of things. So if people want to hear more from you, they can hop on over to our other podcast. Yes, absolutely. And that was great. Good fun. Very happy to have been part of that. And this as well, this is like, uh, this has been, I love listening to these conversations and I guess in keeping with, with the way it's, it's worked today, I'm constantly talking back to my car stereo or my uh, speakers or, or whatever else as, as you guys are talking. In that case, I don't expect a response. In this case, I, I had expected, you know, sometimes responses that, that didn't come thanks to technology, but I guess it was maybe just to keep it all in, in line with my normal experience. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. But only sometimes. Well, thanks for coming on, Corey. This right. was a blast. Uh, so much fun for me. I hope it was. Uh, I hope it was a good deal for you folks, but a uh, great fun for me. Absolutely, lovely. Wow, uh, Josh. Emily normally does this, but uh, do you want to sign us off somehow? Give us a final word. Oh man. Um. W- wow. I have no idea how to. <laughs> Maybe God doesn't know either? Question mark. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great yeah, sign man. off. Let's just call it there. Great. Let's call it there. <laughs> She's so good at just doing it on the spot. Isn't she? She's like instant. We like ask her and she's just like, boom. I got something. Hello and welcome to No Normal People. This is a show where we prove that the more you get to know the normal people in your life, you discover that there really are no normal people in your life. You know how there's like famous people in the world that are known very well and how they go on podcasts? Yeah. Well, we don't do that. Marketable names and yeah, audience. Buzzwords, and, buzz yeah, names. Social following. Yeah. And, John yeah. Buzz. And, well, we interview people like your Uncle Terry, who collects model trains. Because he's normal. We'll even interview you, even if you don't have the cool trains that your uncle has. You can email us at nopeoplepod at gmail.com or visit our show page on www.highline.network to sign up to be on the show. And remember, the only normal people you know are the ones you don't know very well. Highline Media Network. Artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.